0: please join me in asking God's blessing now on our time together father thank you for bringing us together here today thank you that you are God that hears our prayer uh, thank you that Donita is uh, is feeling better we pray that uh, you just calm her and and uh, encourage her uh, father as as I go to this time this message time uh, I just uh, want to honor you and I I give you a, a full privilege or, or the right, really, to edit whatever I may say and, and um, to just keep me from speaking anything that would be displeasing to you. Uh, Father, I just uh, uh, pray now for this time. May we be encouraged and challenged uh, and uh, impressed by who you are and uh, who we are in you. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, <clears throat> from time to time at the homestead uh, we will let's see here we go okay we're there okay from time to time at the homestead for uh, our message time we will take a look at one of the old classic hymns and we'll look at the the lyrics and what they tell us and we'll sometimes take a look at the person who composed it and And the story that goes behind the composition of some of these hymns. And um, as we look at these, we see how God has used these people in a very special way to bring a message to us. And today we're going to do that, but we're not going to look at an old hymn. We're going to look at a a contemporary worship song, and it's printed there in your bulletins. Uh, You know, as we look at some of these great compositions and we look at what is written in there and how it goes right along with what the scriptures teach us, we can see that what many of these uh, dear writers uh, did for us was composed a sermon that could be put to music. And so what we're looking at today is a contemporary worship song by Tommy Walker called He Knows My Name. Tommy Walker is a composer and also leads worship down in Southern California. And he starts out this worship song this way. He says, I have a maker, he formed my heart. Tommy Walker starts from his beginning right where the Bible begins. And right in Genesis uh, is very clear that we were created. Now, this is this is something that would not have to have been stated a generation or two ago. It would be a, a da moment, right? But we live in different times, and we live in times today that tell us that we are an accident. Uh, in our schools, in our scientific community, they tell us that nothing plus nobody equals everything. And they teach this so-called scientific theory, which we will see is not scientific, it's just a theory. Uh, But they teach this so-called scientific theory as fact. And and basically what it teaches us is, is that eons ago, there was matter out there. And some cosmic energy interplayed with this matter. And there perhaps was this big bang. We're not really sure about that, but they think that's what happened. And then we had this primordial soup. And out of this soup, oh, emerged life. Imagine that. And little by little, it organized itself, pretty smart. And it kept getting more complex and more complex. And then simple animals came out of this. And so on and so forth, and we keep working ourselves up the scale, and we have, you know, we have frogs and so on. We have monkeys and apes, and lo and behold, here I am. (laughs) We laugh, but it's not funny. Uh, You know, they, they, they teach this as being fact. And it gives credence to that thought that says, the bigger the lie you tell the easier it is to get people to believe it. This whole concept of evolution is the greatest hoax I believe has ever been foisted upon mankind. Literally billions of people believe it. It makes that Nigerian uh, scam, you know, where they say, "Uh, yeah, it's your lucky day. You've got, you know, $14 million in a Nigerian bank account, and all you have to do is claim it, you know. That's child's play compared to what we... In a society, are being taught as far as evolution is concerned, it's an insult, I think, to most of our intelligence. Um, You know, Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's minister of propaganda, you know, said that you know if you tell the same lie over and over and over again, if you tell it enough times, people will believe it, and we see that in our in our society today, not just in our society, but all throughout the world. Sadly. This whole concept has gotten into our churches and our Christian schools even and You know parents if you're thinking of sending your children to Christian schools, you might want to ask them a question What is their position on creation? Do they hold to the biblical account of it that we see in Genesis chapter 1? now sadly Fewer and fewer of our Christian institutions take that position. They will respond something like this. They'll say, well, we don't take position on secondary matters. they bought into the culture is what they're saying. This is not a secondary matter. If we don't believe God's account of creation, as Ken Ham would say, if we don't believe that, just when in the Bible does does God start telling us the truth? Right. I challenge you when you get home this afternoon take a look at Genesis chapter one and see how many times it says that all plant and animal species reproduce quote after their kind unquote. Count them. Many times it'll say it in there. A fish begets a fish. A flower begets a flower. An ape begets an ape, a man begets a man. It's plain and simple. My Bible tells me that that I have a maker. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14 says, You formed me in my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully evolved. No, i fearfully and wonderfully made. Tommy Walker goes on this, he says, Before even time began, my life was in your hands. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And that knew is a relational term. It's not new about, but knew you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, He chose us, that is, God chose us in Him, it says, and that Him is Christ. It says, So God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intentions of his will. You see, before time ever began, God had you and me in mind. And he looked forward to this time when you would be alive and I would be alive. He chose us. He chose us. He picked us out one by one. He selected us one by one. He says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We are not an accident. This whole concept of evolution is, is so troubling. And essentially, what it's, it, it says something like this. It says, it's so easy. You see, if you just do these random acts, you know, millions and billions of times, you know, through the ages, all of a sudden you end up where we are right here. So I say to those people who would say that, if it's so easy then let me ask you to do one simple little thing. If life, this life that we know today, you and I, these complex bodies that we inhabit is just so easily created, then it should be easy for you to do something simple for me. And if you can do that, I'll give you everything I have. I'll give you my property. I'll give you whatever's in my bank account. All my personal belongings, everything. I'll give it all to you. Just make me one seed. Take your pick. It can be corn. It can be an apple seed. It can be barley. Whatever you would like, pick a seed and make me a seed. I'll give you all the raw materials. I'll give you carbon and sulfur and nitrogen and and anything you would want. I'll give you all the raw elements, and you just make me a seed. It's, after all, just blind luck. You, being very intelligent, should be able to do that very easily. Make me a seed. Of course, I will ask this. It not only has to look like a seed, but it has to be able to be planted in the ground. And then, with the proper temperature and moisture, it should sprout and grow and mature as a normal seed would. Make me one. If it's so easy to do, it should be child's play for you. We are no accident. Tommy Walker goes on and says this. He says, in the second verse, he says, I have a father. And he calls me his own. Now, each one in here can rightfully claim that they have a maker. But not each one in here, I'm sure, can claim that they have a father. See, the privilege to call God their father is reserved for those people who have come to faith in Christ and know his son as their redeemer. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. I have a father. And I know most of us in here do. We not only have a maker, but we have a father, and he calls me his own. We belong to him. Tommy Walker goes on and says this, he'll never leave me no matter where I go. That's straight out of Hebrews 13, verse 5. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Then Tommy Walker goes on to the chorus, and that's really where I want to spend most of our time. He says this. He says, he knows my name. That's a simple statement. How important is your name? For most of us, it's one of the most precious things we have. It not only identifies us, it defines us. I can close my eyes, and I can say, Bill Gunn, and... In a moment, with my eyes closed, I can tell you many, many things about him. I can tell you uh, about how high, uh, how tall he is. I can tell you his, his voice, the tone of his voice, the look of his eyes. I can tell you his character because I know him. His name not only identifies him, it defines him. And so when I think of Bill Gunn, I think of all the things I know about him, and it comes to my mind immediately. When we're studying the attributes of uh, the names and the attributes of God, we saw how God's name defines Him. Our names are important. Um, Several years ago, uh, my dear friend Bob Ghetto, from whom I leased uh, his place for 10 years, uh, told me a story. Bob Ghetto uh, and his first cousin, Virgil, um, lived right near to one another. And Virgil, for many years, as those of you who've lived here a long time remember, Virgil was in the state legislature for many years as a assemblyman and later a senator. And Virgil took Bob to a political gathering. And at that political gathering, among other people, there was a man by the name of Paul Laxalt. And if you've lived here a long time, you remember who he was. Paul Laxalt was governor of this state for for a period of time, and he was also a United States senator. And actually, he ran for president in the mid-1980s. Obviously, was not successful. Well, at this political gathering, Virgil Ghetto takes Bob over and introduces him to Paul Laxalt. And Paul Laxalt and Bob have a conversation just for perhaps five minutes or so, and Paul asks him about his family and his business and, and several different things. And so on. just had that that casual encounter. Three or four years later, Virgil again took Bob to another one of these get-togethers. And lo and behold, here's Paul Laxalt. He's there too. And Bob is standing over in the crowd, and Paul Laxalt sees him. And he says, Bob, Bob, come on over here. Come on over here. Bear in mind, Paul Laxalt had not seen Bob but only one time in his life. He called him over. He says, "Bob, how's Helen doing?" Helen was Bob's wife, and he proceeded to ask him a bunch of questions about his family and his business and so on and so forth. Was Bob impressed? I think so. How precious is our name? It's very precious. It gives us—it gives us for people to know our name gives us a sense of worth and and, and dignity and respect. It's powerful, and. I'm like a lot of, of you out there. I have trouble remembering names, so I cheat. I have a little sticky note inside my wallet, and so if I meet you, I might, for the first time, I might say something like this: "You know, I'm going to have a hard time remembering your name, so I'm going to write it down in my sticky note, and that helps me a lot. It doesn't. It's not ironclad for sure. I can still forget later, but it helps me because our name is so important to us. Well." God knows our name. He knows us. He cares about us. He, it's as if, he says, I'll be standing over there and God will say to me, Bill, come on over here. I want to talk to you. How's Val getting along after her surgery Monday? How's Ted getting along back in New York? How's Lindsay liking Master's College? What does Emily think about spending the last two or three months in high school? How are things going? Pick me out of the crowd and want to talk to me. He knows our name. Tommy Walker goes on to say, not only does he know our name, but he knows my every thought. And that, for most of us, will be a very sobering fact. He knows, not only knows my every thought, he, in fact, he knows everything about me. He, Most you know, uh, troubling at times, he knows my motives. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 tells us there is nothing about us that is hidden from Him. He knows my every thought. Knows my motives and everything about me. You know, you might think that you know me. You might know me from my speech. You might know me and see me from things that I've done. But what you don't know about me, nor do I know about you, is your thoughts and your motives. And I dare say that most of us here, would just as soon have that stay private but he knows my name he knows my every thought he knows my motives and everything else about me and yet go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and he says he chose us in him he ch- he chose me he picked me out of the crowd he picked you out of the crowd and you he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, irrespective of the fact that there's times when my thoughts are not what they ought to be, nor my motives what they ought to be. He knows my name, he knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. Not as he know, not only does he know everything about me, but he also cares about what happens to me. First Peter five Verse 7 says this: casting all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. That term, he cares for you, literally translates this way: it matters to him concerning you. It's important to him about you. Your successes, your failures, your wins, your losses, your triumphs, your tragedies, all those things. It matters to him. He knows our name, he knows all our thoughts. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 talks about him hearing us. Now, I've never been to China, much less been to an orphanage in China. But I have talked to people who have been to China and been to an orphanage or two in China. And I don't mean to say that all the orphanages in China are this way, but this particular one was this way. And this is very unusual, this particular orphanage in China. It was, you know, it was intended for, for infants, for babies. And in this orphanage may have been perhaps, I don't know, 125, 150 babies in there. You know, a great big room and so on and so forth. And the very remarkable thing about this orphanage was how silent it was. Oh, you'd hear, you know, a baby rustling in his crib or something like that. But there was no crying. Now, you ask yourself, well, have the Chinese figured out that that magic secret that We would have liked to have found out when our kids were real little and they were crying all the time and we couldn't seem to find a remedy for it. Well, in a way, they found a remedy for it, all right. There's a reason why those little babies in those cribs in that Chinese orphanage just didn't cry. It's because when they did, nobody paid any attention didn't make any difference. They could cry all they want to. There would be no one to come over and pick them up and hold them. No one to come over and try to talk to them or, 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 or perhaps, you know, uh, massage them or, or pay any kind of attention whatsoever. They were entirely ignored. And so after a while, babies just gave up crying. It made no difference. Nobody came. He hears us. God hears us. us when we call. <clears throat> My dear friend William Plants would put it this way. He said, God always answers our prayers. He always answers our prayers. Sometimes he says yes to what we're asking of him. Sometimes he says, not now. And sometimes he says, no, I have a better plan. Now. What I have here these are the these are little prayer pages that we have every Wednesday night when we meet for prayer and I I've saved these for the last year and it's pretty pretty complete I might have lost one or two in there but it's pretty complete and I thought you know that I will document and chronicle some examples of how God has answered prayer. Now there's some of these some of the prayers that we would have listed in our in our little paper here are extremely difficult if not impossible to tell whether god has answered them or not for example we pray for the leaders of our country that they make wise and moral decisions how do i know that prayer got answered or not tough to see you know they clearly don't always make the kind of decisions that we think are appropriate but how much worse would it have been if we hadn't been praying for them so it's it's hard to gauge the results sometimes whether god has answered these prayers or not there's a lot i found a lot of god's answered prayers in pretty what i would say pretty routine uh matters of healing you know prayers are you know so and so uh you know went in for surgery or something pray for them so on so is uh, you know is having other kind of health difficulties and so on and so those are pretty routine but i would say this Every healing is a miracle. Every time you and I get healed, it's a miracle. Every time, if I cut my finger like, you know, right there, and I bleed, in about two weeks, you know, you won't even be able to tell anything happened there. Now, we take that for granted, but I say that's a miracle. After all, try it with your car. If your car's leaking oil, what do I say? Oh, if I just hang around and wait two, three weeks, it'll all be better. You laugh, but you know we take we take just root, what we call routine healing for granted. So I didn't. I had three pages of of or uh, almost three pages of what I would say were were more, if you will, dramatic examples of how God has answered prayer. And I'm, I'm going to share just a, just a few of those with us today. In January, Pastor Ted. We received a request for prayer for Pastor Ted. I believe his last name is Kern. Is that right? Pastor Ted Kern. He is a Baptist circuit pastor. And where he goes and preaches are to these little small chapels in his remote valleys out in central Nevada. You know, he has a very special ministry. You know, these, these congregations might, in some cases, I think are just a single family, huh? Sometimes it's just a single family. Sometimes there's, you know, maybe 20 or more people. I don't know. And I, th- I don't know exactly even how many he goes and preaches to, but it, I think four or five every week, something like that. Okay, well, Pastor Ted likes to go hunting, too, in his, you know, as a as hobby. So he was out hunting last January, and he got lost out in the hills out there. Last January wasn't like this January. His life was in jeopardy, exposure to that cold. We had to call in to pray for Pastor Ted that he would be found. Guess what? That went on the list, and Pastor Ted was found. Praise God. God answered prayer yes. He answered our prayer yes. In February, a man that's sitting right in front of me here had been dealing with difficulties as a result of surgery on his throat. I'm talking about Will Mayberry. And if you remember, back at that time, if you'd go to try to talk to him, his voice was just about inaudible. Am I right? You talk to him, and, and, and the, that's the surgery he had had on his throat, I would say, happened back in October, November, something like that. Anyway, it, wasn't, he, you know, it just was not getting any better. And he's, the doctors would tell him, hey, you're going to have to go in and get another surgery. We got that on the prayer list. We prayed for Will one Sunday. He walks in and his voice is perfect. Coincidence, you say? I think not. In March, we had a little baby girl that was born safely to Jason and Jackie Branley. Answer to prayer. In April, Nancy Crawford suffered something I'd never heard of before in my life. It's called a spinal stroke. She was in the hospital in Reno having, quote, routine back surgery. And that surgery was successful, but in the process of the surgery, the blood supply got cut off from her spine. And so Nancy was paralyzed from the midsection on down. Now, if you suffer a normal stroke to to your brain and if you get attention very quickly – You know, they can get most of your function back. That's pretty, you know, they've really made great strides that way. They can get most of your function back. But the doctors told Nancy that no hope. Spinal stroke, there is no, there's nothing we can do. You're going to be paralyzed. People in this church said that they would not take the doctor's answer as the last word, that God had the last word in that. And we committed to pray for Nancy until she walked through that door on her own. That happened six weeks later. Doctors do not have the last word. God answered prayer. Amen. Little Franny Mori was in an ATV accident. Little six-year-old girl, seriously injured, life in, in danger. We prayed for her. She made a remarkable recovery, so remarkable, in fact, she was at VBS in July, along with 120 other kids, of whom there were many professions of faith. In July, my friend Bill Bradley's issue with his esophagus, which the doctors feared was cancerous, and he went in for what tests, Bill? What they feared was cancerous was not, and his life was spared. God answered prayer, yes. In July, Chris Caldwell's close call was just that, a close call. God answers prayer. In September, Brennan Beheimer officially came on staff here. And this is a story where God, in one instance, says no to our prayers. I have a better idea. And then ultimately would say yes to another. And that is, for a period of, of several months, dating back into the prior year, that would be 2009, we were in discussions with a man, a fine man from Colorado, about taking the associate pastor's position. And, and we had had numerous telephone conversations with him. He and his wife came to our church here, and then later he came uh, again by himself, fine man, great man of integrity. And we got to that point where it's just about seal the deal and it fell apart. It just fell apart and it was just clear that this is not going to work. It's not going to work. And I was not living in faith. I was I was discouraged. I, oh. Now we got to go back and start all over again. We didn't have anybody else in the hopper. We would have had to go back Start clear from scratch and start this whole thing on over. And I thought, oh, boy, here we go. Months and months and months are we looking at. Maybe, who knows, maybe years. I I don't know. Discouraged. And then Woody said to me one day, he says, I wonder if Brennan would be interested in, in, in that. And I told him, I said, I don't think so. I said, I think Brennan is interested in staying in Russia. And that's where his heart is. And a few more weeks passed and kind of talk came up again and, and Woody says, well, I wonder if I should just contact, contact Brennan. And I told him, I says, well, it can't hurt. Worst he can do is say no. And so Woody contacted Brennan and sure enough, he was interested. But the rest of the story is, as Brennan shared when he actually got here, that had Woody called him or, or emailed him a week earlier, he would have said no. He would have said no. So what God did is he took one out of our hand, and it was his timing. You see, if the whole deal with the first guy would have fell through right at the beginning, we might have contacted Brennan at that time, and he would have said, No, I'm not interested. I'm staying in Russia. But God worked in that to say no to this man in Colorado but he answered our prayer, because we were always praying, God, send us the man that you want for this job. And he answered that in Brennan. God heard us, and he answered. He said, no, I have a better plan. But then later, he said, yes. God answers prayer. In November, my dear friend Chris Ward suffered a heart attack. And his wife, Maria, called me on the phone that very day. And then in the afternoon, and she's telling me about Chris's situation. And I said, Maria, let's pray for Chris right now on the phone. And we prayed on the phone that afternoon. And one of our prayers was, is there would be no, no lingering damage from this heart attack that would make, you know, a, a complete recovery. God answered that prayer. God hears prayer and he answers it. In December, There's a number of things, a number of remarkable things. You know, the whole way that, you know, the mission trip and all that, the way that all went. One of the more amazing ones is that we had been praying on Wednesday night for the Iwana program. You know, attendance had been dwindling. It was dropping way off. And, we're, you know, and so we were praying, God, bring us more kids. Bring us more kids and bring us the help we need so that we can accommodate these kids. Well, guess what? Wake up. Here it comes. Da, 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 da. It doubled in just a short what you know, month and a half, two months. All of a sudden we got more than twice of what we had earlier. But maybe the most remarkable thing happened to our missionary that's now in New Jersey, Amun Sharone. Amun, as you know, and he and his family are native Pakistanis, and they they've had to flee Pakistan for their life. Members of their family had already been killed because they are Christian. This is the real deal. This is not, this is not Hollywood. They had to flee to, for their safety. But all along, Amun wanted to get back to Pakistan. He wanted to get back there. That's where, his, that's where the people he was ministering to were. That's where part of his family still remains. He wanted to get back there. So he wanted the type of visa that would allow him to travel freely back and forth. Now he could get a, a religious, uh, religious workers, uh, uh, you know, what's that special case where you're you're fleeing pers- persecuted and free- fleeing for your life. You got that uh, permission to stay in the country, but then he'd never be able to go back home again, and he wanted to be able to go back home. So, time after time after time, here his. The hearings and all the uh, all the uh, bureaucracy involving his visas keep getting postponed and keep getting postponed, keep getting postponed. Pretty quick, we're starting to get the message: God, you must want him here for a purpose for a little while longer. Well, a number of things happened, but I think one of the most remarkable ones happened in this last December when Amun Sharon was invited by a Jewish rabbi to come speak at their synagogue on the Sabbath. This is not a Messianic community. This, this is an Orthodox Jewish church, or not church, synagogue. They invited a Christian evangelist to speak to them. That doesn't happen. That does not happen. So God said no to our prayer to give a moon, you know, clear sailing with his visas. He says, no, I have a better plan. But look how we answered our prayers as we prayed for our missionaries that they would, they would be blessed by God in their work. God answers prayer. Just last night, this wasn't last year, this was last night, I got the word that Vonda Norcutt's sister, Debbie, who had had dealing with issues of cancer, uh, I got the test results back yesterday, and there was no further cancer. God hears and answers prayer. So, where does that take us? Uh, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 22 and go to verse 39. Luke 22:39. This is familiar, a familiar setting to most of us. This is uh, Jesus in the Garden of Olives before his crucifixion. And I'll read this, verse 39 to verse 44. Luke writes this, and he says, And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. A couple things I want us to look at here in this passage. The first is in verse 39, when he says this, and he, when and he, of course, referring to Jesus, came out and proceeded, Luke says, "As was his custom." You know, the disciples would have not paid any attention to this. This was kind of routine for him. This is part of his discipline. This is, but this is this is part of what he did. This was commonplace. He would go there and pray and you know the question we have to ask ourselves is well, what about us is it customary for us to pray many of us will have to admit that it's not unheard of but it's certainly not what we would say is customary and he goes on in verse in verse 42 this this kind of boggled my mind in verse 42 jesus is praying and follow me along here with me, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And I read that, and I says, now, wait a minute. A couple things. Jesus already knows the answer to that prayer, right? He's 100% God, 100% man. He already knew the answer to that prayer. Furthermore, he had been busy telling his disciples disciples and anyone else that would listen telling them he had to go suffer and die and then be raised again on the third day if you remember back in matthew chapter 16 he was saying that and peter comes up to him and says wait a minute forbid it lord that that had happened to you and what's his response then get behind me satan and now he is praying this prayer essentially what he is doing he's praying hey I want to opt out of this crucifixion thing. Isn't there another way? You know, can't there be a change in plans? You know, now this had been planned before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew about it all along. And what in the world is he doing praying that all of a sudden, you know, it's changed up? And how serious was he about this prayer? He goes on, and he says in verse 44, he says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, this is a legitimate, uh, how would you say, uh, incident that can happen to you and me. Under, under Under the greatest of stress and duress... You know, the, the little capillaries in our skin can burst, and blood will flow. into in, And so blood gets mixed with the sweat, and it falls down on the ground. He was, he was struggling with this. You know, you have to believe that he's thinking, you know, as the years went by, he knew what was at the end of the road. But you kind of don't think too much about it in one way, the human part of Jesus. That is, you think, hey, that's a ways off. It's a ways off. All of a sudden, it's here. And he is saying, Father, if possible, let me pass on that. Let me, let's do it another way. If we read the account of this same incident in, math, or, sorry, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, it's phrased just a little bit different. It said this way. It said, "Abba, Father, is if, if possible, this cup may be removed from me." Now we know what Abba means. It's the equivalent of what we would use for daddy. And so what Jesus is doing essentially saying this: "Daddy, please, please don't make me go through this. There's got to be another way. I want out." You know, there was no relief in sight. I mean, you and I might go through physical challenges and so on and so forth, but we maybe have the emotional support of our family right there with us so we don't have to go through it alone. Or maybe, you know, we're dealing with certain stresses emotionally and yet our our physical issues are not a problem. It was all there for him. He was going to experience the worst possible physical trauma, And plus the emotional and and, and spiritual uh, hurt and abandonment as well. Everything was there. And he's saying, please, Daddy, please. But ultimately, but ultimately he says this, but not my will but yours be done. You see, even to his own son, the father has to say sometimes, no, I have a better plan. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do about our own commitment to prayer? Um, a few things here, not exhaustive, but things that I want us to consider and take away from here is this is that prayer should be our custom, it should be habitual if you if you will. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17 i believe it is says pray without ceasing and that yet uh, means to have an attitude and a mindset of prayer it should be customary it should be a reflex reaction not something of last resort hmm? how many how many times is it last resort you know i got myself in a jam now get me out it should be customary for us this prayer that we pray, should pray should be from the heart as Jesus was, fervently. It should be our pouring our heart out before him, not a mechanical exercise. Reading that account in verse 44 of Luke chapter 22, you think that was mechanical? Or was that fervent? Was that from the heart? Was he pouring his heart out to God? You know, Brennan last week at prayer time read that passage in psalm 62 verse 5 through 8 and and the psalmist david talked about that pouring our heart out before god that should be our attitude in prayer we should be prepared to be persistent luke 18 verses 1 to 7 talks about that there's the magistrate and the widow that the widow would give the magistrate no peace And we should give God no peace until he answers our prayer. We shouldn't expect that we are going to get our prayers answered one time. Now, maybe we will. That can happen. It does happen. But we should be prepared to be persistent. George Mueller would say that God often delayed the answers to our prayer because he liked hearing from us. You know, because the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And and so on. And that's what George Mueller thought. We should be prepared to be persistent. We should not be mindlessly repetitious. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 said we should not have vain repetition. It just shouldn't be a bunch of words that just keep flowing out of our mouths. We should not be on autopilot. If you and I are praying and it's kind of autopilot and it's just kind of, you know, we're out there and our minds are somewhere else, that's not the way it ought to be. You wouldn't do that with your best friend and if you're talking to him, would you? You'd pay attention to him. You know, I've been guilty of that. I'd be talking to somebody and something comes to my mind. and I'll be thinking about, who knows, a thousand miles away and I'll be distracted. And, and I know the other person can tell because I've seen it in their eyes at times. You can say they're, you know, they're, their eyes float out. Hey, they're in another world out there. God deserves our attention deserves our attention. We can't just be mindlessly rattling things off there. We need to be specific. We need to tell God what we want Him to do. Jesus was. Be specific. Then it's pretty clear when He answers that prayer. We're specific. Prayer should be, finally, prayer should be offered up to God giving Him our complete, complete permission to choose any of the three options that are open to him. If he says yes to what we ask of him, we say thank you. Thank you. If he says not now, you know, if we get to the fork in the road and we think we need to go to the left, we say, you know, God, I really think this is what the, this is where I need to go, just to the left. But I want what you want so you got to send me to either to the left or send me to the right or hold me where i'm at and we and and we're prepared to say this we've arrived we're be, we, we've arrived on the right track when we say to god god here it is here's the three possible choices and whichever one you pick i will be thankful for and i will thank you and be grateful to you for it that's the way we need to pray get to the fork in the road And he says, okay, you wanted to go to the left? That's good. That's the right way. Thank you, God. He might say, you know what? It's not the right time. Brennan wasn't ready yet. Stay right where you're at. Don't go down either of them right now. Okay? Thank you. Stop me in my tracks. Or he'll say, no, I've got a better plan. Go to the right. We're on the right track if we're willing to give God complete complete right to choose any of those and to thank him regardless of which way he tells us to go well i want to close this um many of you got this little bookmark cardboard bookmark it's in the bulletin i think here a couple weeks ago and it's titled who am i in christ and i don't think you can read through that and not come away with the impression of how wealthy we are. <laughs> what is ours? And I want to add, I know, add to it, as we talk about prayer, how wealthy we are as far as our privilege in being able to go directly and get the God of the universe's undivided attention. Romans, we're very familiar with that passage in Romans 8:28 that says, "And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love Him." But he goes on and follows it on with verse 31 and 32. and it goes this way, He says, "What shall we say then, if God is with us, who can be against us? He who did not did not hesitate to give up his own son for us, how will he not also with him?" freely give us all things. God wants to answer us yes. As any of us as parents know, you know, I think that that it's not lost on us that we're talking about a, a, you know, a parent-child relationship here. As parents, we know what do we want to do? We want to answer our kids yes. We do. But we also know that, that a yes answer might not be in their best interest. And we're willing to You know, we're willing to put, you know, make the decision there. No, that's, you know, sorry, you can't. No. Rich we are. God wants to answer us yes. And if he already gave up his son for us in the way he did particularly, what else is left? He already gave us that which was most valuable to us, to him. Well, we meet every Wednesday night for prayer. There's still room for you. But more importantly, even if you choose not to participate in the, in that Wednesday evening prayer service, I challenge you in your homes that prayer would be customary, that it would be seen as customary, that, that people who know you from inside or outside the church would expect Prayer in your home Your kids would expect prayer in your home And that when you pray It would be from the heart And when you pray It would be persistently And when you pray It would be specific And it would not just be a bunch of words And when you pray You give God the total And complete right to choose Yes Or not now Or I know I have a better plan Let's pray. Father, thank you now for these dear people that you've given us here. This time we get to talk about us talking to you and pouring our hearts to you. Uh, Father, as parents, we are grateful for our children, how you've blessed us. Father, you've answered prayer in keeping our kids uh, the way you have. What a blessing they are to us, and we thank you for them. Father, we thank you for our dear residents at the homestead. Father, they are an encouragement to us, and we pray that you would make whatever time they have left here uh, one of joy and a great confidence in that they will meet you face-to-face and they will spend eternity with you. Father, I pray that for all here who may know you as their maker but not know you as their father, that they would make that decision today to change that so that they could know you as their Father as well. We just thank you now for all you do and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.